This morning's presentation is by, uh, by the artist uh, Jackie Irvine, and in a way makes some kind of connections between what Noel Hayes said yesterday morning around truth and story. And uh, Jackie's an extraordinary artist. Uh, I worked with her way back in 1997 when I was commissioner of uh, the Irish participation at the Venice Biennale, and Jackie was the artist that represented Ireland that year. She represented, she was a part of an extraordinary movement of artists earlier than that, and she was in Venice in, in 1995 as well. She's not only an artist, but she's also a very important critical writer. She's, a, and in a way, a lot of her writing I, I've, uh, I, I read carefully and, and, and make use of. So it was interesting for a visual artist, an installation artist, to write her first novel, a novel that she wrote uh, and was published two years ago, about an extraordinary story uh, that perhaps today, and Mary McAuliffe in yesterday's talk referred to, uh, referred to it. Uh, I won't say any more, but I'll, I'll let Jackie tell us about Days of Surrender. Welcome, Jackie Irvine. Uh, so first, thanks, Fiok, again for another gorgeous invitation. Thank you. Um, right, so this is Days of Surrender. It was an invitation by Copy Press, very small, uh, recently formed publishing house in London, to write a 100-page book, novel, something. And um, really, I wrote it from a position of complete and utter ignorance. Um, I was curious about this. I was curious about this photograph. I was curious about... Um, who owned the feet sticking out from behind Pierce in this very famous um, photograph of the Irish surrender? I became even more curious when I saw the same image that was used a week after the photograph was taken without those feet in it. So I'll go back one because this is, um, yeah an official Ireland in the 20th century, and clearly those feet are not there. So the story of whoever owned those feet simply was not there. And that became, made me, okay, there's something here I want to find out about it. That really was my starting point for writing this and researching it. It turned out the feet were owned by Elizabeth O'Farrell, which a lot of people probably know. Um, it, they were on Moore Street, the surrender was on Moore Street, and she had walked out the door before Pierce to go and deliver the surrender when people were dying on the street. The woman beside her in the, um, is Julia Greenan, who was her partner, who was watching as her lover walked out the door potentially to her death. I just didn't know how the hell for 100 years I hadn't known this story. I asked people, did they know maybe I'm really ignorant of Irish history? And how did that happen? to this extent, and nobody seemed to know. Nobody had heard of them at all. That's why I wrote this book. Um, I'll just read a few <clears throat> excerpts from it. Friday, 28th of April, 1916, Moore Street. Number nine, Mrs. Mulvaney, Vitchellers. Moore Street. A street of small holdings and tenements, more chance of dying here than in the trenches. That family there, they just couldn't believe it, left it too late, lying out there in no man's land, a lot of them, and the size of their flag, the whole bloody bedsheet they'd taken to wave, as if they were off for a picnic, filthy, 
but it must have been white at some point. Well, there was no telling him, and she tried, and the daughter tried, after they wouldn't let us in. The old man, the granddad, hiding behind the door, and then knocking outside and shouting, and one of our lads screaming in the road in his own blood. What did he think he was playing at? No need to have his eyes stuck up against the keyhole to see that coming. And then there was nothing else to do, and that was that. We're in, and he's still sitting there in his armchair, staring at the hole in the door and not seeing anything at all, nor any of us coming through it, nor the shock on our faces as we see him, and the scream still washing over all of us from out in the street, like watching a man drowning the way we couldn't get to him, no matter what, forced back against the walls, watching him go under, until we shut the door, and still it follows us into the small parlour, and we're all cold with the sound of it seeping into us, making us feel sick and very far from home and the old man silence doing the same. They were upstairs, the rest of the family, the father terrified, pulling the sheet off the bed with the mother flapping and flustering around behind him, trying to both help and hinder at the same time. And Liz had given up on him, seeing as how he was the spit of the alpha downstairs, the same mad blindness about him. No way of seeing sense until it hits him in the head. She was talking to the daughter now, slow and calm, the way she does when the waters have already broken. And she's telling them to breathe, breathe, Breathe and push and breathe and push and push and push and breathe. That's right, the slow floating solidity of it. And they cling to her voice for dear life in the pain and the mess and the chaos of it all. You can see the girl doing the same. Her eyes are wide with panic and she's licking her lips and listening, concentrating on what Liz is saying. Oh, that's the knack of her, ladies and gentlemen. The hush she lets fall over things as they become hers. Her own kind of hush that makes you feel everything's all right no matter what. There, pet, there, that's right. But there's no time, and this is not the time, and Liz is telling her this, do not go out there. Do not let him take you or your ma out there. This is not the time. Tell your da, tell him, pet, nobody's innocent here. There are no innocent bystanders in this house nor on this street. It doesn't matter anymore who you say you are, not now. They're not listening. We're doing our best to get out of here. Then you might get out too, but right now you can't go out there. Tell your da, stay where you are. That's all there is to it. And the girl, she's probably about 14, with more sense than the rest of them put together. And you can see the horror of it taking shape inside her and the panic turning into something heavy and dark and numbing as it sinks in. And she's saying, right, I'll talk to him. I'll... But there's no more time and we have to go and the screams are loud again as someone makes a dash for it and more banging and shouts and silence. And then we're out and running and there's a roar and we're in. Machine gun fire blasts the streets, no going out. Walls are broken through, one into the other. Plaster dust, bricks, rats, dirt, holes, holes. Bare feet scurrying, trying to get out of the way. A green-black stain creeping and crashing steadily upwards, leaving its trail of destruction. Small, narrow houses full of corners, angles, stairs, cupboards, walls, and people, people, people. Some of those who couldn't run or were afraid to, frozen to the spot as the walls came crashing in, scuttling out of the way as best they can. Another door locked. Mrs. Margaret McCain, further back in the house, listening to them tunneling their way down the street throughout the night, cooking up a bit of breakfast for them all when they get this far. Bridget, they're nearly here. Would you get the door, love? Bridget McCain, herself and her father, rummaging, clinking, dropping the key in a panic. Open up now or we'll open it for you. Fifteen she is. The key caught in the floorboards, trying to work it loose. Stand clear in there, will you? Mrs. McCain keeping an eye on the potatoes. At least these will fill them up. Volunteer Joe Good staring into the parlour. Oh, Christ almighty. A piece of Bridget's skull on the ground beside her. 
Clean and white, he mutters, dazed, like I'd imagine a baby's. Picks it up, slips it into his pocket so that no one will discover it. Number 11, T.F. Cogan, confectionery, morphia. Number 13, Mrs. Rose Ann Hogan, morphia, none, no, gaping holes in rubble. Number 14, Mrs. Norton, china and glassware, gangrene. Easing the stretcher on inside and over the top of the banisters, jarring on something half seen in a dim, cramped kitchen, crockery crashing to the floor and James Connolly roaring. Number 15, Hanlon's fishmongers, the stink of dead fish enough to turn the strongest of stomachs. Connolly's infection spreading. Silence. Muffled thumps. A groan. Number 16, Mr. Patrick Plunkett, butchers poultry, etc. The stench of death already waiting there to greet him, subtle but insistent, under bleached attempts to subdue it, sluice it from the heavy scrubbed wooden chopping blocks, sacks of wood chip and sodden sawdust, slump in a corner. Reports of the Countess striding up and down around Stevens Green, looking for all the world as if she was having the time of her life, practically unaware of the bullets whistling past and the British already lining up on the rooftops overhead. Those trenches finally do no one any favours when the bullets start showering down on top of them from the machine gun mounted on the roof of the Shelburne Hotel. Sitting ducks, that's what they are. Miss Margaret Skinneder. Skilled engaging wind, light, velocity and distance, pedalling against the odds on a borrowed bicycle, dropping off messages and ammunition, mostly unnoticed in the chaos. Up on the roof of the Royal College of Surgeons, Miss Skinneder looks down her sights across the treetops of Stevens Green. A figure in khaki keels over far below. A school teacher of mathematics she is in Glasgow, over in Dublin, on her Easter holidays, frequent visitor to the hills around Dublin, testing detonators and the like, training the Countess Fiona. Inner city Boy Scouts schooled in the art of marksmanship and explosive devices. No, girls, no. The Countess professing herself confused by those dreadful girls. They taunting her Fina boys, leaving them tongue-tied and excited and slightly bewildered. A girl scout group, Clannagale, is set up under other auspices. Captain May Kelly leads them down from the Dublin mountains, proudly places them at the service of the Countess when they make it that far. Some of the younger ones are only 10 or 11 years old. They start crying in fright when they see what's afoot. But Margaret Skinneder finally arrives at the Countess's side. The unexpected thrill of a custom-made uniform laid out awaiting her arrival. Her presence, unofficial but not unplanned, moleskin, a beautiful material, to fight alongside the Countess. The soft, chilling embrace of it, Miss Margaret Skinneder and Countess Markovich. Well-designed handmade breeches, belt and putties for women. A most excellent markswoman, having learned to shoot at a rifle club in defence of the British realm. The .303 Lee Enfield rifle, a heavy weapon with a strong recoil, Margaret Skinneder, bits and pieces for detonators hidden in a bonnet, wires in her skirts, news and urgent secrets on her tongue, skidding around a corner as something hits and tears through metal, spokes, rubber, a hail of bullets rained down yet again from the roof of the Shelburne. Maggie Skinneder dragged inside, writhing in agony, moleskin and leatherwork, ripped and shot through three times, the blood spilling out darkly, staining the material cruelly. Her hand held tightly in Madame's as Miss Madeleine French Mullen hunts and gouges for the bullets. Revenge, she is told, at some point through the next feverish hours or days, lies in the form 
of an unarmed policeman the Countess personally shot dead, and she passes out of consciousness again with the cold comfort of this death hanging around her neck. Moore Street, Saturday 29th of April 1916. It's our only hope, it'll have to be one of you, they're saying, looking for me to Julia. So that'll be me then, as I couldn't live with myself otherwise, wouldn't want to. Sean McDermott sticking a flag out, to door, out the window to see if it can stem the barrage. More shots, one breath, in, out, a pause, then another, in, out. In, out, a shot, a roar, a silence, all of us on tenterhooks, don't know if it will hold. Here, take this, the tremor in Julia's fingers, distract her with a wink, lightly does it. Julia, shush, shush, I can't bear to look any longer. Carrying Commandant P.H. Pierce's message, this cargo of cardboard and sadness under and surrender, under such a forlorn flag and crosses. Believing that the glorious stand has been sufficient, it was Julia who noticed the picture, thought it might do the trick. A cardboard backing in behind a frame, a pencil, where would we be without art? Her way of muttering that lets me in and keeps everyone else outside. Now look at us, more inside and out than we'd ever dreamt of being. But this is not the time. Steady as she goes. I won't look at more than her feet now, sticking out across the cobbles, six feet, pulled from under them, and my own two crunching loud and heavy across the glass. Slowly, slowly does it. Can't afford a slipper, it'll rattle the lot of them. Desirous of preventing further slaughter. That cockney lad with the Irish mother, if he's in behind there, he'll know me for sure. The O'Rahilly's revolver over there, sure of course it is, and his hat there too, flapping in the gutter beside him. Him forever singing and whistling. You'd know he was on his way up the stairs long before you'd clap eyes on him. Took 30 or more of our lads out with him, a charge towards the barricades. Oh, Christ almighty, no, not now, keep going. Look where you're heading. But he must have gotten in somewhere after all. They must have pulled him in after his plan turned into a bloodbath. They're shouting now, running up there behind the sandbags. All right, lads, all right. <sighs> Steady on there, Liz. That's Julia in there, Sheila. She says, loves the ring of her name in Irish, Sheila, 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 and he green on. I'm so sorry, love. To open negotiations with the British commander, one foot, then another. Breathe, breathe. That's right. In, out, in, out. Nearly there now. Get them out, get her out, alive. Let her out or you'll be burying me alive too. Yes, yes, it is. Nurse Elizabeth O'Farrell. Saturday 29th, 16 Moore Street, Mr. Patrick Plunkett's butchers, poultry, etc. James Connolly lying on the floor in the middle of the parlour, bodies all around, a shifting of petticoats and boots near his head. Later, it must be later in a back room now, calls her close, Julia leaning down into his fever. Don't be crying for your friend. They may blindfold her, take her across the lines. She may be some time, but they won't shoot her. And she's ashamed, hand up to her face, burning wet despite herself in the gloom that hides nothing. Face to her hand, burning for her despite herself, still struggling with it, bows her head with thanks all the same, holding on to these words like a rope as his infection continues to rage upwards unchecked. 
telling them to herself bead by bead by bead until they're the rhythm she walks to through these tightening rooms. Anyway, um, Elizabeth O'Farrell does manage to make it. She goes, she delivers the surrender. She then goes back again to get Pierce to tell him what happened and to bring him to. Saturday, 29th of April, 1916. Moore Street, 2.55 p.m. Time stretches out, walking down the road towards the end of it. Commandant Pierce, removing his weapons, slowly, sir, slowly, the revolver and sword unclipped, unhooked from their leather holsters, his volunteer jacket denuded in the process. It was then I noticed him, that Tommy, stepping up for the photograph. Hold it there. Three, two, I stepped back. One, to spite him, click. <laughs> to not give him the satisfaction of making that photo with me in it. I am aware that the Countess, doubtless, would have done otherwise, that others, in such a moment, would have looked posterity more directly in the eye, but not Elizabeth O'Farrell. Unwilling to claim this wretched limelight, stepped in behind Podrick H. Pierce and forgot about my feet that were left sticking out behind his. My apron, my overcoat stepped in behind Pierce and halfway out of history, stepped in, stepped out. I would undo it if I could. I will regret it forever. I think I might leave it there. <laughs>